This week on Monero Talk is sponsored by Cake Wallet. Store, send, receive, and exchange your Monero safely on your iOS and Android too. Cake Wallet is open source, and you always control your own keys and seed. And by XMR.to. Anonymously exchange your Monero into Bitcoin and seamlessly send Monero to any Bitcoin address. Go to XMR.to or use it right in your Cake Wallet. Cake Wallet and XMR.to are trusted and verified by the Monero community. Monero Talk is also made possible from contributions by viewers and listeners like you. This week on Monero Talk. Douglas Tuman interviews Amir Kaziyeli, CEO of AlphaMine, and Brad Yassar, an OG Bitcoiner since 2009 and influential investor in the cryptocurrency space. Doug, Amir, and Brad discuss Bitcoin maximalism, if Monero is living up to its value proposition of being a tool that is decentralized, censorship-resistant, unconfiscatable, and if it does it better than other cryptocurrencies. They also talk about Monero mining versus Bitcoin mining, and if privacy and fungibility are critical features for cryptocurrencies to achieve digital gold status. Monero Talk starts now. Namir, thanks for coming on, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, of course. So uh, this is the Monero Talk show. Uh, how is it that you guys are are involved in Monero? Are you guys involved in Monero in any way? I, I, um, Matt put me in touch with you. He said uh, you're you're good folks to speak to in the in the crypto universe. So you guys have a lot of crypto knowledge. Um, a little bit. And uh, so I'm sure I'm sure there's a lot of things we'll 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 touch upon. But uh, trying to cut to the chase here. Are you guys? Are you guys Monero guys? Are you guys? Uh, well, you have Monero to define uh, what you mean by Monero guys, and, and uh, you know the involvement part. Yeah, are are you? Things. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, all right. Let's let's back up. So, what is your what is your current kind of stance on crypto, and uh, where do you guys? What are your beliefs in crypto? What do you guys see as being the value proposition of what cryptocurrency is? Um. Freedom. Yeah. In one word. Okay. Uh, so, so yes, we are Monero guys. I mean, I, I use Monero um, quite often and hold some too. Uh, but aside from that, in the larger scope of, of uh, blockchain and crypto, uh, I, I think we're seeing now uh, more and more the... Um, decoupling of, of Bitcoin from the stock markets and from fiat currencies and um, not to make this about just Bitcoin, but it's a good indicator since that was the original cryptocurrency on how uh, people who use crypto can shield themselves a little bit uh, from political unrest, social unrest, um, global pandemics, uh, you know, banking restrictions, traveling restrictions, all these things are uh, imposed on us by by third parties governments you know corporations you name it uh that of course have uh some desire to control different aspects of life for uh their constituents and and uh i believe with uh with crypto we're able to break those boundaries and and have freedom whether it's freedom for me to send you some money uh, without going through four intermediaries who take their little cuts and shares every time we transact or, uh, you know, the freedom to 
have my own, own my own identity, own my own data. Uh, you know, the, the list is long, but in, in one word, I always think of, uh, you know, cryptocurrencies as, as a tool for freedom. Yeah, right. I, I definitely agree with you guys there. Um, so how'd you guys get into crypto? What's, what's the background? What's I mean, the, I'm a fan of technology in general. So I've been following, uh, you know, development of kind of Bitcoin since about 2011. And, you know, some of these other uh, coins came, you know, as time progressed as well, but really got into it seriously in 2017. So I think uh, my background's in electrical engineering and Today we run a, you know, I run a company where we help investors who are looking to, uh, you know, gain exposure to crypto through mining. Um, and so, you know, we got a lot of uh, different, uh, you know, I think uh, packages set up and uh, different uh, aspects of the entire mining ecosystem that we've kind of demystified and you know make it easier for somebody to come in and understand, kind of from a hardware stack perspective. Uh, what it means to create these digital currencies and, and then uh, become an owner through that route. But I think it's just great technology and, and I'm a very big fan of technology in general. So that's what drew me in uh, in the first place is, you know, we've, we found a way to put value on the internet and, um, you know, bring a lot of the aspects that were existing in, you know, traditional you know, f currencies and, and kind of the ideas behind the, the philosophies behind currency. And now we've like implemented them on the internet. So I thought that was pretty cool. And in 2017, it said when is when you really got into it? That's when, yeah, that's when I started, uh, you know, the, uh, the company that I did. We started Revelux uh, with a, a, another partner of mine and we were shipping um, GPU based miners um, out to consumers, and then we quickly pivoted out of that into Alpha Mine, which is what I'm doing today. And we're working mostly with institutional uh, clients and uh, helping them with uh, data center placements, one to five megawatts typically. It's kind of our sweet spot. All right. And Brad, what's your uh, what's your crypto story? If you could yeah, mine is I just stumbled upon it. Uh, a friend of mine sent me a three files to compile in 2009 and said, Brad, compile these. I'm probably the only person who read Bitcoin's white paper three months after starting mining and, and having actually Bitcoin node running on my computer because I received it. I was like, this is either a prank and he's going to take control of my computer or it's something interesting. I put it on a safe environment, ran it had no clue what it was, but it looked cool. Numbers were growing as, as I was running a node and I saw more blocks. Then I started running the miner and I saw more Bitcoins accumulate in my wallet. Mind you, at those days, it was all uh, command line interface. So there wasn't much to look at. It was just numbers. And, you know, I like those things. Um, so, so that was my start, then got excited with uh, Litecoin and, and Mastercoin. I made some friends, got involved with Ethereum's uh, original sale because uh, that was like, oh, okay, now we can have business cases behind this. Uh, with Bitcoin, I tried really hard to uh, be an entrepreneur and start something new, exciting around it. And there really wasn't enough understanding or appetite for it. Um, so I, I kind of said, okay, I'm just going to mine some and, you know, 
send it around and talk to my friends about how cool this is, but uh, not really a business case, at least that I could, uh, you know, articulate in a way that was uh, getting people excited. Uh, but uh, with Ethereum, that changed with the smart contracts and then just grew from there. Um, I'm, I'm a technologist, you know, I love building stuff. I started building software at a really young age, hardware. And so this was a logical progression of uh, going from the Internet era to now. So uh, decentralization. When your friend sent this to you in, in 2009, was this did you did you grasp? Bitcoin then? Did you realize what it what it was attempting to be, or you were just it was just some technology that you were experimenting with, or did you did you fully I look cool? So I'm gonna say I grasped, but <laughs> no, I mean I could. But did you knew it was like this decentralized form of money? Like, you, did you? So I have a background in uh, banking and finance. I'm an economist by by trade. So yes, it was very interesting. It wasn't just like oh, it's another SETI project that's running on my computer and uh, creating random numbers that I have no clue. No, I, I kind of understood the, the potential. I really didn't understand the impact that it's going to have. Otherwise, uh, I would have probably hoarded more Bitcoin from the early days. When did you start to believe that this thing might actually obtain some value and, and keep it? Um. When did Coinbase start? 11, 2011, 12, around that time, uh, a couple uh, really smart and, and successful people uh, started uh, building businesses, businesses that I wanted to build, but again, I wasn't able to articulate it well enough to potential investors and business partners, I guess. So I think, um, you know, maybe two, three years into it, as there was a price associated with it, it started becoming real. Because when I started, Bitcoin's price didn't exist. You could send Bitcoin around, like whole Bitcoins, and no one was phased about it. They weren't excited. They weren't upset. I mean, it was just like, wow, this is cool. We transferred value. How much value? No one knows. Then when Bitcoin was $100, now people were like, hey, remember that 50 Bitcoin I sent you? Um, do you still have it? Can I have it back? <laughs> and, and yeah, I mean, it started becoming real. And, and for me, it was always a great opportunity. But I think whenever the price becomes, the market share becomes uh, significant enough that people who are not involved with it from the beginning are paying attention. That's when it becomes validated. Hmm. And was, was your initial drive to, so you started mining pretty early, I assume. Yes. So what your initial drive to start mining, was it purely out of a hobby? Like, let me see what happens when I mine. And what, or was it like, oh, let me start collecting these things. They might have value. Um, I, I'm a gamer. I like collecting digital stuff, even if it has no value in games, other environments, persistent or not. So for me, probably it was the little hoarder gene in me, like, let me collect as much of this as possible and see, like, gamify it in my head. Like, okay, can I get to, you know, 100 Bitcoin? Can I get to 1,000? Can I get to 10,000? Like, that was the drive. And of course, experimenting with it, sending it, receiving it, trying to see what the infrastructure can do uh, was uh, the other half of the fun. 
So uh, obviously, once again, so this is the Monero talk show. So a, a lot of this show is always about, you know, talking about Monero and crypto in general and, and often comparing Bitcoin to Monero. Uh, when I asked you guys the value proposition, you guys kind of both agreed that it's, you know, it's about freedom or, or liberty. Um, you know, this the fact that it's this, this decentralized system. So that's why I kind of got caught up in Monero, because I think it does that the, the best. So I'd like to hear you, your opinion on that um, and whether or not um, you do think, you know, that there is a difference between things like Monero and Bitcoin and other coins in terms of which ones are kind of truly living up to that value proposition of creating uh, a tool that's, you know, decentralized, censorship resistant, unconfiscate, you know, uh, unconfiscatable. Do you, do you think uh, Monero does those things well and perhaps better than others or how do you compare it to bitcoin do you, well, do you I mean, make that comparison if, if, if either, either one, one of us, us said monero and bitcoin are, are the same, same then we don't belong on this show <laughs> i mean then we should just go and take some blockchain 101 classes somewhere so two completely different beasts and uh, uh, of course monero has uh, a lot more privacy uh, than, than people thought Bitcoin had originally. You, you see the, 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 the pseudo-anonymous nature of the transactions with full-on visibility on chain is, is not privacy. I mean, it's a great starting point as a first draft of something. Uh, I think uh, whomever created the, the, the code behind Bitcoin's original um, release is a genius. Uh, so, so that goes without saying. Now, Monero took all the learnings for so many years between Bitcoin and when it was launched and said, hey, everyone thought this was completely anonymous and secretive, and it's not. But when you use paper money, no one is, well, U.S. government is now, but, you know, it used to be when you use paper money, it was untraceable. I could give you a million dollars in cash and no one else had to know about it. It's my money I'm giving you. Obviously, uh, I'm not, uh, you know, advocating criminal activity or evasion of any sorts. That's not the point. But if we have a legitimate transaction between you and I, I believe that's just between you and I. No third party needs to monitor it, supervise it, control it in any way, shape or form because maybe you're providing services. Maybe you're selling me a good real estate, whatever it is. And I think Monero brought the needle much closer to that kind of transaction than a Bitcoin transaction where if I know your wallet, I can see you know pretty much what you're doing. I don't know who you're doing it with to a certain extent, but I know what you're doing. Uh, so yes, there is a huge difference. And yes, Monero is a big contributor to liberty and, and being able to transact without uh, worrying about who's monitoring this, who's you know keeping tabs on me and what's going on. Amir, you want to add anything? Yeah, I, I guess I will add that I think in my mind it's a question of compromises and extremes. And I think that uh, Monero, like the community that tends to gravitate towards Monero is typically and you can see this with kind of like the, some of the decisions the developers have made you know throughout these hard forks etc is um this community who believes in you know 
typically absolute decentralization and complete anonymity and you know a lot of this stuff not you know not downplaying a lot of the decisions i think some of them are great you know like you know full if you're going to go for a private uh blockchain make the whole chain private versus kind of taking the zcash model and having this kind of like pseudo private you know side blockchain that nobody uses you know i think a lot of the decisions make sense i think when it comes to kind of the development of the blockchain technology we've seen instances where you know sometimes the full-on you know hardcore 100% decentralization doesn't make the most sense especially for like industry adoption and like getting the technology out there versus um you know in some cases it does make sense and i think having be, being able to have the two working in tandem and being able to switch between the two depending on what you need i think is a healthy is a healthy thing i don't think that um i support conversations where they go like oh you know i'm all one way and and everything should be that way i think that there's value in the commercial ecosystem for some things that you know exist in blockchain that don't you know, exist in bitcoin that don't exist in like for example the monero blockchain I mean, we can get more specific if you want but uh i think at a high level that's kind of my stance on when you put the two next to each other now about um so you, you guys talk about privacy and obviously you know i see it that way as well but uh also do you think there's like some some critical critical you know, features that are necessary. So like fungibility, right? So I, I kind of see that as being the breakthrough with Monero. Obviously, e privacy is what allows for fungibility to essentially exist. Um, but do you think that's critical for digital money to have for, you know, cryptocurrency to have something that's trying to be digital gold or digital cash? Do you think it, it needs to be fungible? I mean, that goes right back to what I was just saying in terms of like extremes versus compromises. And I think, you know, even on the regulatory level, I know you're running for Congress. So there's this question of, well, if something is completely fungible and it's like on the Internet, you know, how do you what stops it from being a great vehicle for money laundering? Right. And obviously there's these kind of like lines we got to draw, I guess, either personally, but also as a society of how comfortable are you? with you know a technology that enables x y and z you know and if x y and z includes some really horrible things i think that question can always obviously get blurred and i think a lot of people are quick to just talk about it philosophically of like oh fungibility great thing you know i want to have you know freedom and privacy i think uh it's a complicated question though you know when it comes to practice i think it's like um freedom of speech right? It's something we all want. So fungibility, we all want. But then when someone starts, uh, you know, uh, creating hate crimes against who you are, and it starts affecting you personally, then you start questioning, well, is absolute freedom of speech where someone can go and threaten you and say the most horrible things about you as a person, you uh, as, a, as a group, as a community, is that okay? And what do we do there? And, and I'm, I'm all for fungibility. So I, I think that's, that's a great feature. But at the same time, um, the challenge there is, it's not even policing it, but it's like, if you give total freedom to people, you're giving it to good people, responsible people, as well as, unfortunately, those bad apples that exist in any society. And so they're going to use it for their benefit. Like, I, I always get a little 
giddy inside when I read these. Oh, Monero was used to launder a billion dollars in in you know terrible like drug money or or uh, whatever the crime was. Or Bitcoin was used to launder 1.6 billion dollars in tax evasion money or things like that. And I'm like. Do you guys know how many U.S. dollars, how much money is used to wander and do horrible crimes created by uh, our government? I mean, it's more than a couple billion. It's it's hundreds, if not in the trillions. We don't talk about it because, you know, again, to a certain extent, we accept that cash is fungible and, and you know, it, there are going to be people who use it to do bad things and pay for bad things. And it's more important to police those activities than police the money itself. And same thing in crypto. I believe, you know, we should have fungibility and, and um, not try to monitor the currency just because it's, uh, it's private and works the way everyone wants it to work, but monitor the activities attached to it and the uh, bad actors. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, no, it definitely makes sense. I hear what both of you guys are both uh, saying similar things. And I definitely, I, I see it as freedom of speech as well. I often say that. And um, so Amir, I hear what you're saying with, you know, maybe you want that ability to essentially be able to monitor things and, and censor things. But um, I don't know if I said censor things, but well, you, know, you want to be able to you want to be able to prevent you, you don't want you don't want a free flowing system where, uh, you know, it could be used for evil as easily as it can be used for good. Yeah, right. I, mean, I think there's value. The there's value to the to the absolute freedom. Right. Like like right. we just discussed. I think there's also value in having, you know, because this technology allows us to do things with money that we haven't been able to do before. Right. So if we actually like, you know, in, in a very systematic way, think about creating systems and, 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 and ways to create boundaries where we can all, you know, uh, benefit from that, you know, and again, but you go down a rabbit hole here of, 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 of arguments of like, who's setting the boundaries and like, yeah. you know, what does it look like, uh, you know, when that those are misused or abused, et cetera. Like, uh, but well, yeah, again, I, mean, I think it's a valid conversation. Yeah, I think we can compare it to the internet itself or even just actual speech itself. So it's like, you know, we we have we all have free speech in America to some great to some pretty good degree and we all uh physiologically have, right? So like I could go out and I could shout whatever I want right now. It may get me in a lot of trouble, but <laughs> I I can do it. So like imagine though where we lived in a world where the government literally monitored everything I said every moment of the day. Uh, and could step in and catch me if I said the wrong thing at the wrong time. You know, if I ran into a, a building and yelled fire, right, and caused chaos, wouldn't it, uh, you know, so the Bitcoin version of, but what scares me is the, the Bitcoin world is that world where every single essentially conversation is being monitored at all and monitored and tracked at all times. And the Monero version is, well, where we're giving people the liberty to go about and, and speak freely all the time then step in as needed as we've always traditionally done in the world uh so i that's why i kind of see bitcoin as you know a slippery slope and a step backwards in terms potentially in terms of liberty and freedom and that's why you know like you mentioned i am running for congress and that's why i i have made that you know that that's a big part of who i am and what what has motivated me and you know i are you guys both uh, u.s citizens are you guys 
So, I mean, you know, in watching uh, Congress thus far, you haven't really seen anybody make those arguments on the floor of Congress, right? So anytime cryptos come up, usually in the form of Bitcoin, and, you know, the, like Amir is bringing up those questions of, oh, well, can this, can this tool also be used for bad? The, the default answer has always been, well, yes, it can, but don't worry. Uh, it's actually, you know, uh, completely traceable and, you know, it's actually can be used to help fight crime because we'll be able to track and trace all transactions. And that usually kind of ends the conversation right there on the, uh, you know, and people are like, oh, okay, so this Bitcoin thing actually isn't anonymous. It's actually the opposite. And so what I want to see is somebody make the Monero argument. And then when they get pushed to then say, well, no, you're right. It can be used for good and bad, just like the internet can be used for good or bad. Just like I was giving you that other analogy, people can have free thought and they can go out and speak freely. But it's a tool that ultimately, if you believe there are more, there's more good in the world than evil, that it will lead to better things because it's going to allow for this free flow of information. And yes, if there are if people are doing bad things with it, then we'll have to use what we traditionally have always used, which is policing to stop those things. That's that's my take. Yeah, hopefully, that. you will be the one to make that argument in the Congress. Yeah, I, hope, I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a scary uh, it's a scary argument to make because you know it is it is a dangerous one. You know, I, I do understand the the fear, but I mean, me philosophically, I do believe that leads to a better world. You know, and I think it comes down to um, you know, and and I think it does align very well with what I believe the you know the purpose and founding of America is supposed to be about, which is you know this essentially equality and individuality, you know, the, the ability to be a free thinking individual and to just live your life freely as long as you don't hurt others. And uh, I think Monero really plays into that well. I think you're braver than I am because, I mean, these questions are, are never black and white. And, you know, that it's, it's but I guess the principles underlying it, you know, those can be black and white to some degree. And I think it's it's a hard problem of trying to match up where do your values align and how do you actually implement those with regards to technology right and in this case this technology governs our money and you know the uh your you know freedom to to, to, to another extent you know if you just want to generalize out so i think it's 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 uh it's a tough one for sure do you think a lot of people in the crypto space actually share these beliefs we're talking about or do you think a lot of people really are just driven by, you know, the motivation for, you know, to make money with crypto. Or do you think a lot of people, I, obviously, I think initially there, a lot, there were a lot of fundamentalists around, like the people that started Bitcoin, I, I have to, would assume really much, you know, believe that, you know, crypto anarchists, they, they believed in this concept. Today, do you think most people actually still have that belief or it's, it's really just talked about but not really believed? Well, I think the crypto community is a smaller representation as, as the society as a whole. So, uh, you know, there are those who believe uh, in, in the pure, you know, uh, use cases for crypto. And, and, you know, just like Amir said, there are those uh, people who have absolute beliefs like it's only Bitcoin or it's only Monero. It's full privacy where I want to do whatever I want and I don't care who gets hurt or, hey, we need to open up and give the government a backdoor so they know everyone and their names and everything is traced because that's the safest way. I mean, there are extremes in, in everything. And there's the people in the middle 
I think originally, uh, you know, because the community was uh, heavy on technologists and cryptographers and people who uh, have a different perspective and understanding, it was more uh, more a homogenous community where, you know, you had technologists coming together trying to solve these uh, perceived problems with the market and, and the monetary systems and things like that. Now it's more mainstream, so I'm sure you'll find people of all beliefs and perspectives in it. Are they the majority? Who knows? I mean, who knows how many people are in the crypto community right now? Is it 100 million? Is it hundreds of millions? Did we reach a billion souls globally? I mean, because of this uh, pandemic, we kind of got isolated in our own little uh, you know, environment. So we don't even know how much it proliferated other than you know, the news that uh, we, we receive and what's being shared. But I think it's a, it's a large enough community that you're gonna find a cross section of all types of uh, perspectives. And within, like Brad said, this like subset of the community, which, you know, of the, of the broader community, I feel like even within the crypto community, there's like another subset of people who are actually concerned with these, with these questions and these ideas and think about things foundationally. And then within that, I think there's, this is a problem, even with, you know, I would say Monero, there's another subset of people who actually um, are empowered to uh, I would say implement their beliefs and their ideas and to try to be a driving force behind a lot of this development. I think, for example, I mean, one example I would give is in the mining world, you know, you take a look at what percentage of miners are actually competent of, you know, what it is that they're doing versus just looking at it in terms of a, a way to make money, like you were mentioning. But, you know, even a level above that, the people who are competent, what percentage of those are actively voting on blocks and on forks you know like i think it's a it's a very small subset that's kind of driving all of this stuff and you know you see it with i don't think like it makes sense you know like um you know i think it makes sense uh, for monero's recent hard fork for, for hard fork for example right it makes sense to a lot of different degrees but on some level it is you know it was already pretty asic resistant right and now you have the situation where it's pretty much only profitable to mine Monero if you've got like an illegal botnet, right? And you've got this like distributed network of computers that are infected over the globe and you've got a bunch of tiny CPUs everywhere and you're able to mine off of that. I mean, I'm sure like, you know, the people who had, uh, you know, institutional level mining installations wouldn't be for this kind of a change, right? But at the same level, at the same time, there's this question within the community of, okay, how much control do we want to give those people, right? Versus like block, you know, Bitcoin, I keep, uh, that's a bad one to keep mixing up here. But with uh, Bitcoin, uh, you know, there's this there's this clear flaw, you know, if you will, from, from, from a lot of perspectives that uh, a large majority of that mining power is owned by a select few individuals. And, you know, that has its own implications. And not to mention a level below that, there's an even smaller handful of manufacturers that can even create these like ASICs, for example, right? And I think, again, it comes back to this extremes and compromises where at different levels, Ethereum has some compromises, um, you know, being G ASIC resistant, but still GPU friendly down to all the way. I think Monero's been like pushing to be on the purest edge of, of this development in terms of, you know, even now the way that they've implemented the random X and, 
ASIC resistance, GP resistance. I think it's uh, interesting to watch and see how it plays out. And I wonder how that's going to change as more people get informed and this actually becomes a bigger part of everyone's lives moving forward, you know, these cryptocurrencies. Are you actively mining? Are you either of you guys actively mining Monero? Do you guys currently we do dabble. that? You dabble. I get just based on whether or not it makes economic sense or what, what is your, your dabbling based on? Well, my I've been mining since 2009, so I'll always mine. It's not in really large scale. So as long as my investment in hardware and Amir and I's invest time investment in the process, building the right setup, maybe the software and things like that makes sense, uh, it's half and half. It has to obviously make economic sense. And then we like supporting certain uh, communities and blockchains. Um, so... Uh, you know, we'll mine stuff not at an industrial level. Like, because if you're doing it purely as an economic uh, exercise, then you have your margins. And if you fall below those, you just stop because it doesn't make sense. Uh, you know, we in the past year or so ran mining when we weren't hitting our margins just to, just to you know, be supportive and uh, contribute to, to that community. But um, we experiment. With, with new coins, new um, privacy coins, as well as uh, uh, open, you know, trackable, traceable ones, uh, just to see how things are evolving. Again, if you're just more in mining one uh, asset, uh, you may get really good at it, but you may also get blindsided by some of the newer um, contenders and newcomers. So we try to keep an eye out on, uh, you know, a subset of... Uh, ones that are of interest to us either economically or because they provide privacy because they have certain functionality that we can uh, either personally use or recommend to our clients so Brett it's very how, how is it that you avoided being becoming a Bitcoin maximalist I mean so you you were there right from the dawn of it um, I feel like a lot a lot of people in your position uh, ended up being you know BTC maximalists for for good reasons. I mean, you know, the, the network effect, you know, you're, you're entrenched in that. So how did, how did you maintain that openness to development in the crypto community? What is that just, it's just your nature or what, what was the, uh, what was um, the I, 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 I love Bitcoin. Don't get me wrong. Bitcoin and Ethereum are the uh, biggest returns on investment I've ever had in all of my investments. And I'm an angel investor. I'm involved with a couple of VCs. So I do traditional equity investments too. And these have been um, very, very generous uh, to me. So um, I, 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 I guess I think I like experiencing new things. So it's the excitement of the unknown. You know, when like, um, you know, not to not to uh, push another privacy coin on your show. But, you know, I, I was very happy with Monero. Then when Grin and Beam uh, popped up, I uh, got involved with those just to see the differences, the similarities, the opportunities. It's just I think it's in my nature to keep an eye open for um, new technologies just because I love technology. You know, anything new, cutting edge excites me, uh, how to learn it, how to use it, how to incorporate it in my life or businesses. And, and so that keeps me open to any new innovation that may be 
superior to what already exists. It's, it doesn't mean I'm going to replace everything. You know, I'm not going to be like, oh, I'm all Monero. I won't touch anything else. There's Monero, Monero, Monero. That's, again, that absolute, you know, I'm right and you're wrong kind of approach that doesn't serve most people well. Um, so do, do I like Bitcoin and, you know, uh, hold a little bit? Yes. Uh, you know, that's, that's a main holding currency for anyone in crypto. Do I think some transactions and some assets are better, uh, kept in Monero? Absolutely. You know, that's, that's a different bucket. And, and I have some beam because, uh, I believe what they're doing and all the integrations and the team behind it, they have really cool ideas. And then you see the cross-pollination of ideas across different privacy chains or across different uh, value capture or reserve chains. And it's really exciting. You know, when Litecoin came out, I was blown away how a very simple change, a very simple tweak to this idea that was Bitcoin made such a huge difference in the experience, the speed, the cost and everything. I'm like, wow, like, why wasn't Bitcoin Litecoin? I mean, why didn't we start there and then do the other? I mean, you never know how evolution happens. So I try to keep an open mind. Mm. I always find the economic uh, equation coming back after, you know, my enthusiasm kind of runs crazy, you know, pulling back the reins. Like I got very excited to try and mine Monero again, going back to the mining thing after December. And no matter what situation I tried to set up, it was just, it came back as, you know, economics don't make sense as cool as this thing is, you know, and we tried a lot of different out of the box techniques, but yeah, I think in 2017 as well, it was, uh, you know, the, the whole Ethereum run up happened and all of a sudden this like GPU mining made so much sense economically. I think that's the one scenario that was reverse where I was drawn by the economics, but then, you know, being a, a, a technophile at heart, I was like, oh, I can start hoarding GPUs and, and start racking shelves. And you know what I mean? It just kind of- Now you need to do Raspberry Pis or Monero. Yeah, now we need a- Raspberry Pis. These uh, NVIDIA, yeah, it's like, I don't even know. It's like, it's so hard to, It's you, you can invest in some Raspberry Pis now and the next thing you know, there's gonna be another hard fork and then, uh, you know, we're out of business. And you know what? That's great, because that's what the community wants, but uh, you know, at the same time, it's a it's a bummer for for someone like me, uh, you know, trying to mine currencies and be a supporter, you know. So. Right. So, what what do you think about it in terms of the what it's trying to achieve? Um, I mean, Amir, you you brought up all the all the points really, but so I mean, you know, with Bitcoin, um, you know, we, we talk about most of the you know the mining being controlled by a few players and the miners, the the mining equipment itself. And most of that is, is coming out of China. Um, do you think there's any, there should be any concern there? Uh, especially, you know, a guy who's, who's running for Congress. I mean, this is something that the U.S. government, you know, would be concerned about, right? So do you think there's a, a potential for Bitcoin to be co-opted by, you know, a state, for example, China, which already we're seeing like over two thirds of mining is happening in, in that country, in a country where we know that, they have pretty much ultimate control of, of all businesses that take place in, in the, within their uh, geography. Do you guys 
have any concern there or opinion there? Well, let me let me even turn it around to you and ask a simpler question. Aren't you concerned that all the face masks we need and use are manufactured and uh, imported from China right now? Yeah. I mean, yeah. we don't need to talk about Bitcoin and some technology that's optional for most human beings to exist. That what about you know our clothes and and face masks? Well, no, I, th well, I think like yeah, of course, those clothes. are all major concerns. Yeah, so the concern is the same. That's where I'm, what I well, I think it's I think it's different only in that this is a technology that's striving to be decentralized and and not controlled by by a state. So I mean, right. that's like the essence, the core of what it's trying to do. But could it potentially fail at that? Um, it could. It could, but there, uh, I think I'm an optimist, and I know Amir is going to probably give a different perspective, but I'm an optimist, and because it's decentralized, because no one controls it as far as we know and we can see so far, obviously Chinese government or entities can open businesses in different countries and mine there too at a loss just to control the network. Is it probable? Who knows? Is it possible? Absolutely. So there's always a concern of 51% attack. There's always a concern of, you know, who is extracting the most value out of the network. But you, I think it counterbalances by the good it does of all those people who, who are uh, able to send money cross borders, smaller amounts with smaller fees and, and uh, use it for the reasons it was created for. So can we do something about it? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, in the next five years, probably a lot of governments are going to or uh, large conglomerates are going to start creating probably uh, mining solutions or, or internal resources dedicated to that just to counterbalance the, the, the control risk from any entity. It doesn't have to be China. It could be Russia. It could be Australia. I mean, if we're talking about decentralized and, and freedom, we don't want anyone to control it. But right now, there is a heavy uh, concentration of manufacturers and mining pools in, in China, and you know, who knows what they're doing with that uh, with that power? Now, I think this is one area, and I'm going to echo some of Brad's thoughts here, but go a little bit more on my technical side and nerding out with Bitcoin specifically. I think this is one area where this is a really great example like the regulators drawing boundaries isn't going to solve the problem of china taking over the blockchain versus setting up economic incentives for that to not happen is is highly effective and so you know at the end of the day it's just like brad said you know if somebody wants to do something especially nefarious you know if the incentive is there They'll find ways to get around you, you know, anything you do to stop them, right? But if it just doesn't make sense, that's a much easier uh, dilemma, you know, for them. And and so with Bitcoin, I think they they like again genius groundwork that was laid. You know, it still needs work, right? Like today, we're starting to see flaws here and there, but the general principle of like the way the happenings work and um, the fact that it's not ASIC resistant. I think has had some very interesting, like when you just take a look at how things have played out. And so like, you know, when you look at the chip industry and how much investment it takes to own a fab and how much investment it takes to, you know, get a run of, you know, chips or, or do a, you know, a new, you know, um, generation of chip, 
um, working with like the, the handful of fabs that are out there that have the process and the technology and then like layering down one level after that of okay who has the capabilities to integrate these chips right and you have a handful of those are the companies everybody knows like bitmain and InnoSilicon, etc and the fact that they have an incentive just like our traditional chip companies like you saw in with nvidia and all these other guys they have a similar model where they try to milk as much as they can out of their process and their technology with a certain level of chip um and that doesn't always end up in the consumer's favor right like um, games might get uh, a lot more complicated and, you know, NVIDIA is still trying to milk their last generation chip off their fab. And until AMD steps in, for example, and offers something that's much better, they don't have the pressure to create that new chip. With Bitcoin, the halvening, I think, and, and these kind of like economic incentives create a similar model where, um, you know, there's all this investment put into, you know, 60 nanometer technology. And then eventually, you know, they can milk it as much as they want, but now there's incentives when it gets cheaper and cheaper for 14 or 10 nanometer, um, you know, what's minor or in a silicon or micro BT, you know, these guys step in and try to steal the lunch basically of Bitmain. All the while the algorithm itself is just making it, a, you know, an increasingly non-profitable equation to be invested in the hardware, right? So I think that whole ecosystem is great to watch. You know, now looking at it again from a Monero standpoint, totally different equation and story, right? And the way that they've gone about it is, I think that's the top-down approach. They've taken a bottom-up approach, you know, in the development. And, you know, I, I think you could go on and on here. And two key things, though, Monero has a lot of transactional volume compared to some of these other cryptocurrencies where people are maybe more storing value. And I think that people can see that that results in a lot of theories out there, a lot of economic um, research showing that, okay, that transactional volume creates a form of stability, right? Um, now, on the other hand, I think Monero's technology lends itself to some new out-of-the-box um, business models, right? And you saw like uh, uh, inklings of it with like, oh, let's mine in your browser without you knowing. Cell phone. Yeah, or your cell phone. And it's always connected. It's always on. It's always hot now. I don't know why. Like, <laughs> and so it's just like, you know, taking those. And I think that's where the boundaries come in. And if you can set boundaries to prevent the nefarious activity so that people can come in and say, hey, what if I want to create an app that you yourself get to choose to like mine some of your CPU power and get some Monero and then like send that to a charity? I think this is where I'm interested to see how things develop and where do we set these economic incentives and how do we use that to control the development? I mean, I'm saying control, but like to guide the development of these technology, you know, this financial technology. And also disincentivize any, um, you know, concentration or takeover. Because again, if China took over Bitcoin, the value would go to zero. And so that's the incentive there. That's not that they're uh, benevolent, great, you know, selfless people. I, I, I'm not under that impression, but the, the economic incentive is if, uh, you know, if something happens to Bitcoin and they're the biggest miners, they're the biggest uh, economic benefactors of that activity, uh, that's going to go away. So they don't want that. That's why you don't see 51% attacks from big manufacturers, although they could, the opportunity cost is so much that they don't do it. Hmm. Well, I mean, right now, I mean, for them, it's, you know, it's, it's what it's, it's minuscule, right? For them. I mean, I don't think they really care about its value right now. Um, 
anything, maybe they just want to potentially keep it alive and hope to hope to control it as it grows. But maybe that would work against them anyway, because they wouldn't be able to. Well, I think there's still enough value in there that they, they do care. It's not that insignificant. I mean, we're not in 2011 with uh, Bitcoin's market cap being, you know, mm-hmm. in the millions. It's it's still, when you're talking about hundreds of billions, there, there's a lot of incentive there for people to pay attention and care. What do you guys think of um, the recent hack we saw on Twitter? You guys... Have yeah, any... the Jack Dorsey, the Bitcoin hack, and the Elon Musk send me Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, send me Bitcoin, and I'll send you back double the amount. And you know, Biden, Biden was tweeting Bitcoin, that out. And I'm really? still waiting on Elon <laughs> to get back to me. I was like, this is great, you know. When I was watching it unfold, it was like all these guys, like Bill Gates, is, is you know spurring Bitcoin adoption. Yeah. COVID-19, interesting. I think if if we look at it from a purely crypto promotion awareness. I think it's great. And I'm not condoning hacking any global social media platform for nefarious purposes. Don't, don't, you know. It seemed like a failed, failed thing though. Like they they could have done so much more. No, No, just look at the accounts they hacked. It was very targeted and for a very specific political reason. Mm -hmm. Just, just look. So picture this, you're in control of Twitter's admin backend and you're able to post from any account anything and there have been so many scenarios that could have been economically devastating globally not just the us or to twitter but globally they could have destroyed any publicly listed conglomerate in a span of 24 hours Mm -hmm. just like destroy completely out of business wrecked trillions of dollars of damage done. They didn't. Why? Because it was a very targeted, specific hack targeting certain entities and with political goals. And so it was, it, was it executed flawlessly? No. I mean, most hackers are at that level of guns for hire. So they give you access and then they walk away. I mean, they're not going to sit there and uh, do anything more. And the people behind it, are they the greatest strategists and the smartest people? Uh, probably not. Or they were very, very restrained either way. But, um, you know, I think it accomplished what it said to do. Uh, so, Which is so, what? Just, just promote, Monero, promote Bitcoin? No, no. Just, just, just uh, no, they probably lost money. The amount of social engineering and setting up and it's investment true. it took to pull it off uh, they were saying they didn't. How much did they make out? Like a hundred grand? Yeah, hundred and seventeen. And there's some speculation that the initial few bitcoins they sent it themselves to show that the people were sending money and like it's a it's a real thing. So yeah, I don't think economic economics were the reason why it was done. I think it was more political. Um, but I'm glad it didn't work to the extent that it could have and caused mm. a lot of a lot of damage. Um, what do I think of it? It shows that any system can be hacked. I've, yeah. I've always said that, you know, when people say this is unhackable or this is impenetrable or this is undoable, I always put my engineer software, hardware, whatever social engineer hat on. And I'm like, oh, it can be hacked. You know, any, any system can be hacked if you understand it well enough and if you have enough time to execute on, mm-hmm. on a solid strategy. And I think Twitter was social engineering 
uh, economic incentivization of internal resources and hardcore, you know, code hack too. So, I mean, it's, it's scary. Yeah. Uh, well, as I'm talking to you about it, you're giving me new thoughts. So I think it, it shows how, um, you know, how powerful we already knew how powerful these companies were, but now it's like, you're really witnessing, like you said, I mean, they could have destroyed any company essentially within 20 minutes. So do you, do you think maybe it's, it's showing, um, you know, the, the, the future business model of why something like a more decentralized version of, of Twitter would make sense? Something like, you know, you know, a Twitter uh, on the blockchain or Twitter on running on top of Bitcoin or Monero, you know, some some version that, you know, is so essentially, you know, censorship resistant. People can be passing their messages around, but without the fear of everything be, being centralized where you can take over the entire system. Is it is it evidence of that? Uh, I, mean, I think a lot about this kind of stuff. And I think, uh, I don't know, you might have different thoughts, Brad, but I feel like it comes down to a lot of people are eager to put stuff on a blockchain and it's most of those applications are just glorified. Like you could have just used the MySQL database mm -hmm. and it comes down to is a nation state going to want to hack your system? If so, if there's an incentive for somebody like a nation state to want to hack your system, then yeah, maybe it belongs on a decentralized blockchain. If not, then, and there might be different degrees of that. Maybe there's not a nation state trying to come after your database, but maybe there is a, uh, you know, some company, you know, that's like, uh, you know, resizable and they got resources. So I think at different levels, that's where I put in my personal belief where the sliding scale of how decentralized should your system and your app and your, you know, et cetera, be is, is comes down to who's trying to hack it. And with Twitter, that's a complicated one because I think most people, they're not trying to, like, nobody's trying to hack into my Twitter, I'll tell you that. Uh, um, but, you know, they might spend a lot of money if they had to store all my tweets on a public blockchain. You know, maybe Donald Trump's tweets, I don't know, maybe different story, or like Bill Gates. Uh, I think that's kind of where I, where I think about it. You know. I think I'm more of a proponent for decentralization so i think there, there are two uh, very important reasons why uh, large social uh, platforms do belong on the blockchain and one is uh, ownership of your own data and and persona um like if if your online profile was attached to a private key and you controlled it uh, no one could impersonate you. I mean, they'd have to literally steal your private key, which there are ways to do it, but it would be much more difficult. Whenever you have very rich and deep data buckets, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, you name it, um, they are prime targets for hacking because once you hack and have access, there's so much you can do. I mean, you can uh, create economically beneficial uh, outcomes from it. You can create politically beneficial outcomes, socially. I mean, it's, it's a lot of power. So do I think that data should be spread out and be decentralized and inaccessible by a hack like this? Um, absolutely. I mean, uh, I've been sim swapped eight times and every time it was targeted and 
very specifically uh, designed to steal, you know, crypto and cash online from my accounts. Um, because I do have a background in security and, and how those things are done. I, I didn't lose anything, but it was still inconvenient to see my, you know, phone go dark and have to deal with the uh, carrier to, to fix it. Now, if the carrier was decentralized and they had to hack my phone or my note specifically to get my information, it wouldn't have happened because hacking, especially in a nefarious context, is a numbers game. You don't hack a system if you think you can only get one thing out of it. You hack a system when you know there's 10,000 potential targets and you say, okay, if I can hit 1% of that, that's like, uh, you know, 100. If I can gain access to half of that, you know, it's a numbers game. So by decentralizing these systems, we can protect data better. Now, technologically, it's much more difficult to do it. It's much more uh, bandwidth and data heavy to decentralize some of these centralized systems. So just like Amir said, is it economically viable to do it for everyone and every system? Probably not yet. But, you know, five years ago, it wasn't economically viable to stream 4K video over any device. And now I have it on my phone. I have it on my TV. My son has it on his tablet. Everyone is streaming high def because the hardware and infrastructure caught up with it. And I think we're going to do the same thing in blockchain where the hardware and infrastructure is going to catch up. And then it is going to make sense to have things decentralized and safer and, um, you know, not have these massive hacks where someone can tweet as Bill Gates or someone can have access to hundreds of millions of social security numbers and birth dates and addresses, everything you need to, uh, you know, apply for credit or get a bank or do all those financial things that are very uh, important. Hmm. That's a good point. Yeah, I... I yeah, I mean, I tend to agree. Yeah, with the mirror in that uh, it's 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 very hard to find a scenario where it makes sense to use a blockchain. The Twitter thing, though, with what just happened, you know, really does start to make it seem like it it might be a viable concept. I mean, protection well, of that. Brad just mentioned something I wasn't thinking about is like the value proposition of just identity mm -hmm. on the internet. I don't think we've solved that yet. Like we've gotten money onto the internet, which is great, but like can I have my identity be protected in like a public key format such that I could, for example, even anonymously, not even just my identity, but can I make a pseudo, you know, an identity and then go on the internet and, just, you know, make an argument. And um, there's no like centralized, I mean, I, you know, centralized is the wrong word, but there's no like repository for identity verification, you know, or a place where I can. At least globally. Yeah. It doesn't well, isn't that, isn't, that, isn't that like Civic? Is Civic trying to do that or no? There's, there's several. There's several projects. Um, Civic sold for one aspect of it. Brad, you're invested in some of these as well, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. I'm, I'm invested in over 100 blockchain projects. And, and, you know, I support them. We built and actively contributed to 50 plus in the past four uh, or so years with Beyond Enterprises. So, um, you know, I, I always ask the same question Amir asks when someone comes and says, Brad, I'm going to build, you know, uh, match.com on blockchain. I'm like, do you really need blockchain? What is it like? What is the essential argument uh, for using a more complicated, costlier, harder to maintain technology 
as opposed to a simple centralized one. And if there's an argument and it makes sense, we build it and we launch it. If it doesn't, then we build it with the traditional tech stack and launch it. Right? Mm -hmm. Cheaper, faster, easier to maintain. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to have always wait on the side of you know money is really the the first the first app that we gotta that we need to get right, and it obviously certainly makes sense. The incentives are all there for that to work. I mean, you're cutting out the the middleman of, of the banks and governments, and that's a huge value. Um, and then my my thought was always that that would then become the backbone of this new decentralized world, and that, you know things would be built on top of it. Do you, do you see it as that way? I mean, Brad, you're invest, actively investing in these blockchain companies. What do you see as kind of being the future of this new decentralized world? I, I do think a lot of the things you're talking about will eventually come to fruition. I kind of see it like the dot-com bubble where we had all the ideas in, in the 90s, but none of them came to fruition at the time because the infrastructure just wasn't ready for it. But now we're seeing all those ideas actually come into reality. I mean, Something like you know, uh, you know, YouTube or whatever, even you know, Uber, you know, was probably even thought of back then, but you know, didn't wouldn't have worked until until now. Um, so, what do you, what, how do you see it structurally working in the future? Is it going to be sep separate blockchains, or are we going to congeal towards a couple of backbone systems that are running everything, and then apps are built on top? I think we started with money, with Bitcoin, uh, with value transfer over the internet. Did we have to know? We could have started with identity. We could have started with governance. But of course, economic value transfer is interesting for everyone, for more people than. Uh, yeah, but would you? I mean, you were there in two thousand and nine. Would you have went in and ran and plugged in all those miners if it what? But for it being about you know, uh, yeah. You know, so I'm just saying we value? started with money. I'm agreeing with you. That's a good backbone to proliferate from. And I think the, the next two big ones are identity and governance. Um, and, and we have a couple projects in, in that space. But once we can have online sovereign identity for all individuals and entities, then you're going to be able to both have value transfers, either with Monero or Bitcoin or whichever flavor you know of, of blockchain you like. And then you're going to have identity. Now you can not only transact, but you can contract, you can get into agreements, you can do a lot more. And then governance is going to probably be the third one in my mind. Once you can have an organization run decentral in a decentralized way, because then you're able to plug in AI components to it. Like if you have a DAO that works by itself, not all the participants and stakeholders are going to be, um, they're not going to be humans. There's going to be some AI there. There's going to be some machines, some sensors, some things like that. And it becomes very interesting at that point where now we don't have to control and manage uh, AIs and computers and machines, but we can work collaboratively with them because, you know, you're, you have a, a system that's decentralized and some of the stakeholders are humans, some of the stakeholders are entities, some of the stakeholders are machines and they all collaborate in this ecosystem and i think once we have those three then we can create a totally completely uh decentralized society and and, and uh, you know it's it's that dream of living anywhere in the world and having access to everything you have right now whether it be entertainment transportation and things like that of course now 
I'm, you know, expanding into drones and AI and machine learning, not just blockchain, but all those technologies are growing together in, in my head in a way. Like right now we live in cities because we want access to a, a nice supermarket and we want access to a movie theater, although they're all closed right now, or, or to be able to go to a nice restaurant. Well, if you could hop on a drone and go to the city in 15 minutes, you would live in the woods and would still have the same access because now the, ac the physical access problem is solved. And of course, if you have drones, it has to be decentralized because uh, you know, human beings are not going to be able to navigate through a busy skyline of, uh, you know, even with planes now, there are some close calls that we don't even hear about. But imagine if air traffic tripled, quadrupled, tenfolded. It's not going to be possible for a human pilot to know what everything around is and react to it. But with a decentralized model, it's possible. So we, you know, we are going to see more and more decentralization in transportation, procurement, you know, as the core uh, backbone infrastructure becomes more reliable and widely accepted. Listen, I could talk to you guys forever. I mean, you know, th thank you uh, for your time. Um, thank you for having and, us. And your, and your thoughts. Let me ask you one last question, though. Um, you know, so obviously I'm running for Congress, and this question is just, just coming to mind as I'm speaking to you. You guys are obviously both very extremely active in the, you know, the crypto world. What would you like to see from, from your government, from a government in the world, preferably the United States, uh, that would allow for, you know, crypto to blossom? I mean, what, what do you think needs to happen? How does, how does America, you know, you're talking, we're talking about this future decentralized world, what, what the future state looks like, I do not know, but what can, what can the state, what can America do to, to stay relevant and, you know, kind of stay ahead of the game and, and stand to benefit from this and, and live in a symbiosis with, with crypto? How, what's the, what are some things that can be done? So one word, sandboxes, and I'm going to elaborate because that's not going to make a lot of sense uh, by, by in itself. Um, we advise uh, governments, smaller governments like Malta, Ukraine, uh, UAE, things like that on, on blockchain and its potential positive impacts and potential challenges that it may present to the existing infrastructures. And, and I think um, I would want to see United States lead the development, the, the, uh, the progress in, in technology, not to be a follower uh, five years behind. And unfortunately, as, as far as blockchain is concerned, it's been feeling like, um, you know, we're just following behind on everyone else innovating. So we need to create more sandboxes and allow people to do things. I'm not saying change the rules. I understand our, uh, you know, regulatory framework is very slow to change and requires a lot of uh, steps to be fulfilled. And that's by design. That's how our forefathers wanted things to move slowly so there's not coups and drastic changes. But I think the biggest thing we can do is have open sandboxes, which have worked in other countries beautifully, and give exemptions to people experimenting. Someone wants to do an ICO, let him do an ICO. Let him do a sandbox and put the necessary educational pieces, warnings attached to it and say, hey, if you're putting $100 in this project, you're going to lose it. Not even there may be a return. You're going to lose it. Are you okay putting it? 
And if people want to support that, let them play in the sandbox. Let's see the socioeconomic impact of that model and then create the legal fr framework around it. And also, we, I would love to see a hundred more people like you in the Congress who actually own crypto, who understand what it is and have a, a, at least an open mind about it. They don't have to be very positive and gung-ho about it like us, but at least have a positive because right now, everyone, whether it's the lobbyists or, or the people who are our representatives, this is an unknown. So they get their information from their lobbyists who are being paid by big banks and people who are not going to benefit from decentralization on how to regulate and how to stop it. And, you know, if you already start with an adverse stance to something, obviously the outcome is not going to be positive, right? If I go into a game and I'm like, I'm going to lose this, I'm going to lose this, I'm not ready, I'm going to lose that game. But if I go in saying I'm going to win this, I may still lose, but at least I have the best chance because I'm believing in the strategy I'm coming to the table with and I want to execute to the fullest of my ability. Right now, that doesn't exist in the U.S. I mean, we have a couple lobbying groups uh, for, for crypto and blockchain uh, that are trying to make our voices heard. And I'm supporting them both, uh, uh, you know, personally and financially, but they're not strong enough. So we need more people uh, before legislating on something. Go get a wallet. Use it, like send some Bitcoin to someone, experience it, see what it is, and then put on your legislator hat and, and start thinking about how can we make this experience the safest, the most positive for our constituents. I think that's, that's the change we need. More sandboxes and more uh, people who, who like uh, technology, who, who want to see a change for the better, and, and have those people work on this as opposed to, you know, people who have no interest in, in any innovation and they just want to keep the status quo because they're either personally vested in some of those older technologies or their lobbyists are or their constituents are in their life. It's like the coal versus renewable conversation. I mean, no one needs to burn coal anymore. We've passed that 200 years ago. I mean... Right now, we can power the whole world on renewables and solar. And why aren't we doing that? Because people are entrenched economically on the other side of it. And they're like, oh, I need to make more money. Well, guess what? If you took your $5 million investment in your coal mine and put it in a solar farm, you're going to make more money in the long run because it's an unlimited resource. The sun is always going to come and shine. I mean, not always, but for our lifetimes, let's say always. So why don't we see that change? Because the legislators are not uh, supporting change. They're, they're like supporting the status quo. And I'd love to, you know, see that change because we are the greatest nation in the world and let's not lose our number one spot just because we're scared of change or don't really um, welcome it the right way. That's awesome. Yeah. Well said, right? Amir, you have any comment there? Honestly, no. I mean, like, what the thing I was going to say, I guess, is just would be a, a result of if we had more educated legislatures and, you know, proper sandboxes for, you know, legislators and lawmakers to be able to understand and grasp the technology. I mean, I'm in my own little bubble. So the thing that I immediately thought of was 
incentivizing the chip industry within the country because yeah. like I mean we don't we don't let you know Russia make our our, our you know bullets, and bullets yeah. And so why would we want China to be making our, uh, you know, our, our, our money infrastructure? And I think that now that we're entering this, that's new a age, really good point. Yeah. Yeah. And it would create jobs and it would create mm. uh, high paying jobs. Yeah. Cause you're talking about high tech here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we should really be owning and we should be incentivizing, subsidizing whatever it makes sense, obviously, but I'm not a lawmaker, but uh, that's where my brain goes in terms of, you know, that's, that's what we, we would, we would, would put us ahead and allow us to compete with China, you know, for example. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. I like it. Listen, gentlemen, this is once again, this is a great conversation. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for having us. Where can people uh, learn more about you guys? Um, for, um, for me, they can go to beyondenterprises.com with a Z. Um, that's our advisory business. And uh, any questions, I'm Brad at Beyond Enterprises. So shoot an email, find me on Telegram. I'm uh, I'm available. It's my name and last name on Telegram, and Amir is uh, alphamind.io, and Amir at alphamind.io. Yep, I'm sure there's gonna be links right on this podcast, and I'm on Telegram as Amir of Crypto. But uh, man, I get so much spam on Telegram these days. It's just email is much better. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll add your your Twitter links. Okay. All right, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank really you. appreciate it. Thank you for Thank having you. us. Have a good right. day. Thanks. All right. Bye. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. We release new episodes every week. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have an Alexa device, you can tell it to listen to the latest episode of the Monero Talk podcast. Go to monerotalk.live slash subscribe for a full list of places where you can watch and listen. If you want to interact with us, guests, or other podcast listeners, you can follow us on Twitter. And please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find the show, and we are always happy to read them. So thanks so much, and we look forward to being back next week.